0: This is John Burke, America's editor for Information News. Welcome to the November edition of the Crossroads Podcast. Joining me today is uh Brent Suzuki, Principal of AMP Capital. Brent, welcome to the program. Thanks for having me. Thank you. Uh AMP's uh infrastructure equity platform uh, sits on top of about $12 billion in AUM, uh investing in all areas of um, infrastructure investing. So me and Brent are here to talk about what the environment looks like for 2020 uh, as we near towards the end of the fourth quarter and some robust loans perhaps making that uh, uh, being a foreshadowing of uh, better things to come in the space. But we'll get to that in a little bit. Uh, but we're going to kick off talking about where the opportunity lies for infrastructure equity funds in 2020 uh, in terms of uh, newer investment opportunities as uh, well as some um, uh, core investing uh, opportunities that might be around the corner as well. So, Ben, with that, I'll let you uh, take it away. Um,
1: well, it's great to be here with you. Uh, you know, look, at it, it's the, the amount of money that's in the market now, um, I think, is dwarfed by the amount of dry powder that's in the corporate pet that we market. Um, but uh, I think it's made all of us, all of the GPs on our side, a little bit harder a little bit more creatively about where we kind of do flow um the typical you know vanilla power plant or you know core road uh port is just being bid down levels that i think we really haven't seen historically um and really without precedent um and i'm sure we'll get into this later in the discussion but it will be curious to see how many of these investments fare and i think there are probably a fair number of parallels to be the investment environment today to what we saw back in 2007 and 2008. I know many might not love that I I say that, but I think that's probably the reality. You know, given where we are, um, not only with this proliferation of dry powder, but also where we are in the broader economic cycle, um, you know, our strategy is really focused on those more defensive areas of infra uh, that are somewhat acyclical or that have shown uh tremendous resiliency through past cycles. so um transportation is a pretty big uh area of focus and strength for the firm so uh, there's a handful of sub within transportation that uh that we like uh digital is a very big area uh that we see tremendous amounts of opportunity who's got mac- mac- macro and sector factors that are going to continue to support that regardless of of whether or not we enter into a correction or a broader recession. Um, so at a high level, you know, I think that there's still uh, an abundance of, of uh, I'd say, adjacent spaces that make a lot of sense that aren't too frontierish um, for us to be looking. But look, there, there are gonna be folks that given the proliferation and given um, the return environment are going to get a little bit more creative in terms of their definition. Uh, and I w- wouldn't be surprised to see uh a lot of opportunities and deals that get announced over the coming year uh that i think will really kind of stretch the imagination of the lps and and maybe potentially the frustration excellent so uh expanding on that definition of
0: infrastructure and infrastructure funds um, we just put out our our fundraising report uh yesterday uh, on information news that we are um the, the pace has actually slowed down in 2019, but that's sort of a misnomer. Um, we got 41.9 billion raised through 24 funds over the first three months, uh, nine months of the year, uh, relative to 57.5 billion raised by 35 funds during the same period a year ago. But of course, the agent foot you know, the in the room hasn't closed yet, and that is um, both the 22 billion dollar funds uh, being raised by J.P. and Brookfield. Um, Fourth quarter, first quarter is the forecast, you know, whenever it happens and happens, and that'll skewer the 2019 totals quite nicely. Uh, and then behind that is whatever Blackstone uh, raises by the end of the year, which is an open ended fund, and they are currently targeting um, plenty of money, and I'll just leave it at that. Um, but within the trend, we uh, discovered um, a couple interesting things um, in terms of specialization. Um, apparently, and for the uh, uh, launched a uh, growth fund um, to support uh, technology. Um, we've also uh, come across a couple uh, tech orientated funds as well within the infrastructure definition, um, such as Digital Colony, I guess, is a good example of it. Um, so there's um, there's definitely specialization that's coming in, I guess, in terms of differentiation. Uh, how do you view that trend? Uh, so,
1: um, I think it's a great thing for the market. Um, um, You know, what it's afforded is really a a broad menu of options for investors, Uh, people that invest in pension funds, uh, high net worth insurance companies, (laughs) to really match their own liabilities with a potential fund strategy. And I think that it's a great development for the market because I think it only broadens the appeal of infra for an ever growing field of investors, which is only going to be good things for us. Um, you know what I do think it's its cause, however, is maybe a, a misinterpretation of how you derive alpha and how you find return and specialization for specialization's sake is fine um, but I think even in those areas so if you're a digital colony or a GI partners and you're raising a digital fund and you've got you know incredible amounts of uh, uh, industry specialization knowledge and a really deep bench of people that know the space inside and out. I think that affords you an opportunity to find and earth maybe flow and opportunities that wouldn't come to a generous opportunity. And I also think that in this age with how advanced and really efficient the market is, I think if you are mid-market or even, you know, uh, small-cap I think more often time than not, you're going to, whether it's a, unless it's a really strong relationship, I think you're going to tend to find there's going to be a number of people calling on your door about you. And I think the market um, uh, has gotten so efficient that as much as we like to say we, we find bilateral deal flow, I think most of these opportunities are usually amongst the Coterie's individuals. So uh, increasingly, I think specialization is helpful but I think where the market needs to go to and where it's evolving is embracing strategies post acquisition value creation initiatives to really un- unlock alpha and that's in my mind where uh, I think the industry is still pretty decent a lot of private equity um, uh, strategies or private equity managers you know GP that have historic expertise in private equity have a deep bench and um, uh, experience in this and so they've got teams of people that are focused on uh, sourcing uh, strategic sourcing and teams of folks that are, are former operators that will identify these dislocations in your cost structure and I think a lot of the infraspace that wasn't born out of private equity started to catch on that this is something that they ought to embrace partly because just being specialized and not fine. Is not going to give you a leg up in delivering consistent returns. Uh, just because everybody is specialized at this point, um, even if you aren't, you know, uh, a dedicated fund to digital. You, if you're a Blackstone, if you're a KKR, if you're us, you'll have an investment professional that has been there that has spent meaningful amounts of time in the space. And so, um, having a dedicated pool isn't really advancing you per se in. In finding the opportunities, which I think has been historic, narrative around know, why specialization makes sense.
0: It's interesting. So you're kind of saying that um, you know rather than telegraphing to the market or which in this case is limited partners, et cetera, et cetera, about a particular strategy, you go in as saying we're an infrastructure fund. We buy a company and we build a strategy around it. And that's where you're going to find your most consistent returns. Or, sorry, a real asset or an operating company with assets as the underlying
1: collateral. I what I would say is, I think open ended structures uh, are well suited for certain assets, mm-hmm. and closed ended structures that have a finite period of time to realize value creation that are better for others, and it kind of depends on. Uh, where where you are in the economic cycle when you're making the investment, how long that cycle typically takes to turn, and whether or not you're taking a contrarian bet aggregating scale during the contraction, if it's a cyclical investment, or if you're really looking to kind of uh, buy things uh, once they've uh, achieved scale and then looking to tease out cost efficiencies. Um, I, it's not a one-size-fits-all type of model, and I think... The, the challenge is really knowing who you are if you're an open-ended structure and you're like a blackstone you've got scale um, it's targeting those investments that are well suited for your landing. Right? right if you are a mid-market fund that's closed in it's finding those opportunities where you you know from a cycle standpoint it's right the right time to enter um, mm-hmm. uh, and from a horizon standpoint you know really kind of make, making sure that the asset selection process is a, a, a very deliberate process. Um, and I think when I look back at um, uh, past vintages, past GPS, um, I think that a lot of the trouble has come in situations where the asset wasn't well aligned with the overarching strategy. And I'm not saying like they were North American focused vehicle and they wanted you know a global asset. I'm saying, they were three years into their you know uh, uh investment period and they had a couple of years left and it was an asset aggregation plan and they had two years to do it it's just and they were mistimed in the cycle or they bought it at a cyclical high and over and you know when the correction took place, everyone's seen like how that story played out so um i i think that as a result uh specialization um uh, More active asset management, in my mind, have led all GPs that embrace that Mm -hmm. uh, to find better deals, to be more disciplined when they're buying them, Mm -hmm. and then more importantly, once they do acquire them, actually deliver sustainable value creation, which I think will benefit us as an asset class because it'll just mean that returns from all of these vintages, whether you're a $22 billion vehicle or a $2.5 billion vehicle or a $500 million vehicle, it will likely be more sustainable uh, uh, returns. And ideally, as an asset class, position us Mm vis-a-vis other private markets or public markets uh, outfits as being kind of a a really preferred place for institutions to work out.
0: Let's harp on that uh, a little bit more. Um, We've had a very active month in the uh, leopard loan markets for these infrastructure-related buyouts uh genesee in wyoming um i am waiting for official confirmation that the deal closed but um terms on their term loan b the 2.55 billion dollar Term loan b did tighten uh yesterday and commitments were due yesterday uh that being november 6th uh usually a good sign that it's going to close and allocate um, they were able to tighten pricing to all plus two weeks uh slight oid um and that comes on the heels of um Either about two weeks ago, um, IFM investors able to close out its buyout of Buckeye, no, that was a week ago, excuse me, um, close out its buyout of Buckeye Partners. Uh, they went to the market with a $2.25 billion from B, uh, and pricing tightened up to L plus 275 bips. They were able to upsize it because they were contemplating the bond deal originally. Uh, they were both rated double B on S&P, which is obviously a good sweet spot for CLOs. Um, home run deals for Credit Suisse uh, and in uh, fairly defensive uh, markets there within Midstream and uh, Railroad. It um, sounds like a pretty some pretty favorable signs for um, these bigger deals. Uh, obviously, Zio is on the horizon, too, probably coming up soon. Sooner rather than later, I take that Reuters story the other day as like a sign that oh, it's probably going to launch next week. although they said the end of the year, mm-hmm. yeah. maybe sooner. Yeah. Um, what does it say for these larger infrastructure fund buyouts? Is this are these defensive investments really playing well uh, in the Trimble B market? I mean, wow. asking, asking a fairly rhetorical question, I think, but obviously there's always those fears of recession. Um, you know, the, the Walgreens news probably spooked more than a few people, I'm sure about this being top-of-the-market economics, but what's your thought about um, these loans and whether you consider this like a harbinger for some
1: of these other deals to get executed um, the rest of the year into, into the next year? I think painting anything with one road brush probably does a right way it, right? It, it's yeah. so asset-specific mm-hmm. and situation-specific. I mean, um, uh, without getting into details about that, other companies, I mean, like Deo, um I think the scale affords it uh, with uh, unique advantages. Um, obviously, we're a big believer our strategy is a big believer in uh digital the digital strategy um, for a lot of macro factors and i think xeo is one of the largest providers of uh, fiber and services uh, i think is going to benefit from not only the proliferation of smart devices uh the creation of massive amounts of exabytes of data uh, but also increasingly the need for more connectivity Right. Yeah. And so I think it's, it's a defensive play. Size kind of matters less. And I think if you are, um, and I can't speak for CFOs, but I would presume that you like the credit because you believe in the broader equity story. And that equity story has legs because of, of its defensive and it's really acyclical. Mm-hmm. Genesis a whole other ball of wax where um, I think that transportation assets, generally speaking, are early cycle. Cycle, they tend to take ownership first. And so, if you are a broke field, um, what you're, I would presume, likely anticipating is opportunities for um, efficiency gains from looking at the operations of the business, but more importantly, probably looking at all of the trouble that the class ones are going through right now. Mm-hmm. I mean, some estimate that they're going through their own recession in the way. They look at carloads and car volumes. Meaningfully off for a lot of reasons. And one of the ways that many of them have kind of embraced uh, to create an earnings pot is by doing share buybacks, or more readily uh, embracing a precision railroad, which is, you know, kind of this, uh, I think, amorphous term. But really, what it is is just really looking at asset utilization and maximizing asset utilization for assets that are non core, really kind of revisiting. Should we be holding up if we utilizing them? Mm-hmm. And so I think what it's led to, and a couple of railroads have really wanted to charge this, is looking at their constellation of railroad assets and saying, do we need to own all of this? Mm-hmm. It's not dissimilar from um, uh, de um, uh, the, and that happened in the 80s amongst many US really, and European and when they boom in private equity, which is you we know, I don't mean, need to own these, it's probably better in our know, and so the class ones are going to likely and have started to do this spin off and sell a lot of these not pieces of the track. And if you're a Genesee and you've got uh, a well well deep investor and you've got uh, fantastic scale, you can bring these into the fold and create a lot of synchronous value. And so you combine that thesis with where we are on the cycle. If you if you're a Genesee and you're buying these assets off of Arguably very low uh, current productivity, and then you ride it through your your entry point is very attractive. And if you ride it through a cyclical upturn, it's only going to be the whole enterprise much more meaningful. So, if I don't know if that would be necessarily the thesis that the, the investors see through, I think it's more you've got a, a very accomplished uh, sponsor that's backing a deal with a market leader that has fantastic margins. But if I'm an equity investor or a co-investor in that deal. Um, it's, a def- it's a defensive asset because of its scale, but it also has a really attractive set of prospects on the back
0: end. Um, just moving on to the legislative environment, Fred. I mean, obviously there was a lot of um, uh, noise around uh, President Trump's federal infrastructure initiatives from a couple years back. There was an architect, Mr. G. D. DeGriven, who's no longer in the administration. There was a bill that was geared around backstopping federal projects. Uh, sorry, backstopping these projects twenty percent from the Fed, um, and then that bill didn't go anywhere. Probably once he got his his tax breaks in place, it was sort of like Congress saying, "Well, we gave you the tax breaks, and that's all you're going to get this go around." Um, so you know, while that cost any hopes of a federal infrastructure bill, it certainly hasn't stopped uh, states from trying to. The pre-3 market from getting projects done. Um, I could definitely point the finger at LA. I'm not going to point at California to point at LA. Um, they got massive projects done uh, last year at the airport. Uh, they got the parking garage done. They got their um, people movers project done. Uh, multi-billion dollar projects with equity investors and contractors all aligned um, in the city's vision to get um, you know modern projects in place ahead of the Olympia. Um, And it's continued already um, with uh, Proposition M to get uh, the subway expanded in LA. Again, it sounds like they have the support of the municipal governments. Obviously, building a railroad through LA is not an easy proposition, um, but they're going through feasibility studies. They want to make this a P3 at some point in the next few years. Uh, There's clear drive. Elsewhere, um, you see, obviously, Cuomo driving privatization at the airports. Um, And then, you know, that's kind of the the big project the LA Civic Center, well, it's LA, there you go. Um, And then the other day, um, you know, Colorado sort of putting out there that there's an unsolicited bid on the table for um, the C-470. But maybe if you could talk through some of your observations now of um, investability in P3s at the, the state level, um, what kind of positive or negative developments do you see in the tea leaves? Um, just as a transportation guy to heart, brand, that's why I asked this, um, that you probably have some soft thoughts around this. Okay.
1: Yeah. Um, I think it goes without saying, you, you walk outside your door, you know, as a user of public infrastructure, mm-hmm. you see just how grumbling it is, uh, it's here in New York or in Indiana or California, I mean, um. Trillions of dollars of reinvestment is required, really, just to bring us back up to par. You know, not even to advance the discussion and bring in different ideas of mobility or new technologies that the world over has really embraced. Um, you know, I, I, I think we all had uh, all of uh, you know these uh, us and the group, uh, transportation investors had a lot of hope that when Trump came in that there was going to be really meaningful you know literal, you know, uh, efforts made and look I, I still believe that at some point something will be done and I, I think increasingly it will be done at the local level and it will be driven out of urgency and frustration get projects done that they have uh, they collectively um mm-hmm. local you know state governments can't fund their own, or they that they find, you know, will have other uh, more productive uses of their resources. Local resources. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, it's uh, unfortunately, however, it's it's you know case by case basis. Right? We're a patchwork world of fifty countries, right? Yeah. Five thousand cities and um countless municipalities and so um i it's going to happen um I, I hate to be uh the, the, the Pollyanna that continues to say you yeah, know this is i don't know what the catalyst will be but i think our uh, continued ability to kick the can down the road and in, in different maintenance is only going to it's going to catch up with us at some point yeah. um and unfortunately i think it, it will only be in those situations where yeah, the, the procuring entity, the local municipalities, under such duress um, that they have to embrace it. P3s, in many ways, are kind of the option blasters. They argue the rip court, um, and it's uh, it's unfortunate because it's an opportunity loss. We look at the world over and, and how P3s have been embraced to progress the discussion uh, and improve the infrastructure, not just maintain it. Um, you know i i i don't believe her, uh, uh, that that it will change but i think that the question is when and if you are a manager um and you're waiting for the tide to turn waiting for the catalyst that you're going to be spending a lot of time waiting and in this business unless you're an open-ended manager uh that has infinite amounts and i'd name it you are i think you, you have uh, a desire to capitalize on opportunities
0: um, and to deploy capital. Um, yeah, we're obviously seeing today the concept of the contractor equity investor is just disappearing entirely to your point because there are some publicly traded contractorslash equity investors that are now showing to their investors a huge loss from P3s, from, you know, they not enough projects and then taking losses in certain aspects of these projects. And so you've seen, you know, a pretty good subsection of guys just retreat. Yeah.
1: I mean, if you think about just asset utilization, it can be capital utilization. If you're an architecture or an engineering firm or a contractor, and you build out a whole team, largely on the premise that Trump was going to create this windfall of opportunity, and it never materialized, you're carrying a lot of overhead without a lot of things like to do. Right. And similarly, if you look at what happened in in the investment banking industry, you know there were a lot of dedicated. Uh, in for groups or P3 groups and now a lot of that resident knowledge has kind of been spread out across these institutions um, you know I, I I still believe it will come and it will come and it will be meaningful and I think that the, the, the preponderance of international investors entering the internal market setting up um, local teams only I think that the promise of what will be mm-hmm. um, because look I think of, of all of the the uh, large, you know, uh, OECD countries out there are probably one of the biggest developing opportunities. Yeah, um, and so yeah, I think that it will come, but I think you have to find ways to fill your time in the interim. And if you're just a P3 dedicated strategy, yeah. I think it's really challenging. Sure,
0: um, and there's just so many uh, X factors we've learned over time, like if you're building a subway. You can't just like enter the market, like that's not going to work. These are massive cap intensive of projects. You need to know what you're doing yeah. and have some sort of track record behind it. Um, I know we've written before about Canada um,
1: encouraging diversity, but I think they're just telegraphing to the equity investors, like look, well,
0: there's a few guys that we see at every process. Like you can go to the province and find a contractor there and at least align the interests with like a local contractor to say that the economy is really benefiting from that kind of initiative but that, that has been telegraphed at it points um in the canadian p3 process um anyway uh brett mm-hmm. i wanted to thank you for coming on today's program and uh thank you we'll talk to you again it's yeah great. Oh, thanks again <laughs>